0: The Gran Cedillo School of Business and Management at Pepperdine University proudly presents the Dean's Executive Leadership Series. This podcast invites top business practitioners and thought leaders to share their view on the real world of the business. Thank you, Mike. It is wonderful to have you back. This is a fairly early in the new year to have our Dean's Executive Leadership Series, but we're, but we're very excited, and I know it's going to be a treat for you tonight uh, to hear our speaker. I did want to give you a few updates on some things going on in the school to get started, so you know uh, it hasn't been that long since we had one of these, but we've had some really interesting things happen since then, and you should know about them. Um, we had graduation in December, so those of you that are students, you actually will graduate eventually. It does happen. You get to walk across the stage. Uh, we had three speakers. Linda Lorray is a graduate of our PKE program, was our student speaker. Um, Britta Wilson, who's a graduate of our One of our executive MBA programs uh, was our distinguished alumnus. She's uh, in charge of human resources at Paramount. And then we had uh, Bill McMorrow, who's the chairman and CEO of Kennedy Wilson. And he started his career working for Imperial Bank and for Mr. Grazia Dio. And so it was a really special day. They all did a fabulous job, and it was a great day to celebrate our graduates. So you all have that to look forward to, even though some of you are just starting your program. Uh, But a number of months from now, you'll be surprised how quickly it comes. You'll get to do that and, and enjoy the same experience. We did kick off the new semester. Uh, We had two brand new things happen this January that we had not done before. Uh, We kicked off the first cohort of our online MBA program, so we're really excited about that. In fact, Andreas is teaching the accounting class in the very first group, so he's a brave, leader in that process i think he just had office hours with his group right before this uh virtually so that's exciting and we have those students on campus for their on-site component next week and have 22 students including a military officer stationed in japan so that shows you what you can do that we would never have been able to do with our on-ground programs the other thing we have and many of you i think in the room actually represent this we did our first cohort of students in our Master of Science of Applied Finance and Global Business programs that started in January. So how many of you just got here and in our Master of Science in Applied Finance or Global Business program? Do we have any that are in that brand new cohort? They're all home studying because they just got here and aren't sure what to do. But we're excited about that. It's a great group. There's uh, 23 students in that cohort and it's wonderful. We also have some new programs that we're going to be rolling out over the next year that you should be aware of. Uh, and if you know people that you think would be qualified for this or would be good for them, you should tell them about it. Our Master of Science in Applied Finance has been so popular here in Malibu that we are going to uh, begin a program in Orange County in our fully employed uh, portfolio of programs. So that will have our first program in Orange County in the fall. Uh, so we're looking forward to that. Um, we are also very close to getting final approval for a Master of science and accounting program uh, we are doing that jointly with our undergraduate college c for college and so that students can now graduate and meet the requirements the newly implemented requirements in 2014 to sit for the cpa exam so that's a new adventure partnering with another school for sort of a joint program uh, so we're looking forward to that that will kick off in the fall as well And then uh, we are just about through the approval process for an emphasis within both our full-time and our part-time MBA program in digital innovation information systems. It's got a couple of more stages in the faculty approval process to go, uh, but we think that's gonna be a wonderful addition to our portfolio as well. So lots of new things happening, lots of new opportunities for students both here in Malibu and at our other campuses. I'm gonna brag a little bit too. We uh, have had some really interesting alumni successes uh, just really in the last few months that you should be aware of because they represent us and help build our reputation. Uh, one of our alumni, John Figaro, who actually has spoken at the Dean's Executive Leadership Series in the past and is a member of our Board of Visitors uh, was named, uh, what, about a month before Christmas or so as CEO and Chairman of Apria Healthcare Group. Uh, so we're very excited about that. He's a fabulous individual. Uh, just before Christmas, and uh, he started January 7th, uh, Blake Irving, who spoke at Dell's last year when he was employed by Yahoo, uh, who actually taught some in our full-time program, has uh, was named CEO of GoDaddy.com, and he started on Monday in that role, so we're very excited about that. And then in August, we had Jeff Sprecker, the CEO and Chairman of Intercontinental Exchange, speak as our distinguished alum at graduation. And uh, right before Christmas, it was announced that his company, ICE, uh, is going to buy the New York Stock Exchange. So now a Pepperdine alum will actually own the New York Stock Exchange once that's approved. So we're kind of proud of that. Um, and uh, as exciting as, as it is to have alums doing things like that, Uh, I got an email, was on an email list from an alumnus who graduated in April from our full-time program, emailing back saying that he's in Europe now, he wanted to hire two interns for next summer at his company. And you know, as great as it is for our folks to become CEOs and to buy the New York Stock Exchange, it's also just as great for our alumni to hire our students as interns, and so we're very proud of all of our alums at whatever point they are in their career and all the really good things they're doing uh, to promote the university and the business school. Last thing is just a couple of upcoming events you should be aware of. Uh, we have some executive education offerings. You can certainly go on our website and look uh, learn about those, but we have a women's leadership series that's coming up that starts at the end of February. Uh, we have a leading organizational change program uh, that will be starting in February as well. And then in March, uh, Dr. Michael Crook is going to be leading a session on strategic corporate social responsibility. And Dr. Crook used to be the CEO of Patagonia, and now he's a member of our faculty. So those and others would be great opportunities if you would like to take advantage of those. And then our next Dean's Executive Leadership Series will be here in Malibu on February 19th, uh, featuring uh, Gary Bernison, who is the CEO of Corn Ferry. So we're looking forward to that. So I hope you'll come back and be a part of that. And the last thing I want to mention, um, there is a, a radio show on KFWB 980 AM called Business Rockstars, and it profiles Uh, really successful business people from really all spectrums, although it has a pretty strong entrepreneurial focus. Steve Lehman, who's a member of our Senior Fellows in Entrepreneurship, supports our program really is the, the brains and initiative and booster behind that. Uh, Larry Cox and John Shire, who run our entrepreneurship program were on that uh, and they really did a two hour program last week featuring Pepperdine's entrepreneurship program. But it's a really great program if you want to just hear what's going on in business and hear from some really interesting people and because Steve's associated with it, we encourage you to support that and listen to it. It's a great learning experience. So lots of interesting things going on, lots of opportunities both inside and outside of the classroom uh, to advance what you're doing. Uh, And one of those ways is to come to programs like this and to hear from really exceptional people like Ed Wedbush. So I'm going to introduce Ed and bring him up. Um, Ed Wedbush is the... founder and president of Wedbush Securities. He uh, co-founded the company back in 1955 with a high school classmate uh, and uh, has grown the company since then. They now have uh, over 100 offices and over 1,000 employees uh, and, and just really a classic entrepreneurial story and an extremely successful and kind of iconic financial services firm in Los Angeles. Uh, he has a degree in engineering actually from the University of Cincinnati so he sort of didn't go the traditional business route and then got an MBA and uh, I did an earlier interview with him that we'll put on an audio podcast that was just fascinating so I know you're going to learn a lot from him Uh, you'll uh, have a wonderful experience as he shares his wisdom from his many years in the business world and so Mr. Wedbush I'd love to bring you up to visit with our audience thank you
1: Rather than stand behind the podium, I'm going to stand out here, if I may, and it sounds like from the echo that I'm hearing that the speaker is working okay. Well, this is fantastic to come to this university. This is a fabulous place, and I can say that because I used to live in Manhattan Beach and in Playa Del Rey for years and never had the opportunity to come to this campus. And I've been here today and been fabulously hosted and my opinion is that this university has tremendous management tremendous faculty tremendous students and tremendous facilities this is one of the most unique places in the united states i came to california after graduating from an engineering school at the university of cincinnati and what a fantastic break that was in my life in terms of career opportunities If I were to tell that story, I would take up my entire 20 minutes and we'd have no time left over. So I can't really do it. But still, people from all over the world come to this university and come to California. And so it's looked upon as an entrepreneurial opportunity, a place of learning to progress. And it's going to continue to do that. And this university is a fantastic example of that kind of progress. When we go to graduate business school, as I did, and we go to learning about management, we learn what the functions of a manager are. And way back in graduate business school, as an engineering student, I really had no concept of that. And then I got into the books, and I saw those same books are continue today. And sure, there's been some variation, but the areas of planning, staffing, organizing, Directing and controlling are some of the basic functions of managers, and most of you have heard those words before. I'm not coming here today to try to redefine those terms or expand upon those terms at all. I'm going to talk about what we call here executive leadership and what are the elements of executive leadership, and I'm going to try as best I can to share with you some of the experiences I had from the very beginning that what I would classify as executive leadership and things that I have done individually as a manager so that you can listen to those and to the extent that you buy into some of them, uh, you can do them. And it may very well be from what I've heard here today that the president of this university does some of those same things that I've learned to do. The actual characteristics of executive leadership need to change with the size of an organization. So a two-person organization that we started, certainly executive leadership there was not the issue. The issue was the ability to sell and service clients and do work, financial work. But when an organization like ours now had 1,000 people, and it's become somewhat international because we've become members of the London and Warsaw Stock Exchanges in Europe, we now have to do things in a more advanced way. And so I'm gonna share with you some of the ideas and things that I've gone through in this dynamic process and see what we can get out of that. One of the most important things that I've learned is communications, the exactness of communication. So when two of us or seven of us meeting or whatever, when we're having a conversation, and you're saying something, it's important that you say it succinctly and carefully. And it's all important, just equally important, that I listen carefully to what you're saying and then that I communicate back and respond on point. We all have been in social conversations where we know that later on, a week later, we don't even remember any of the words that were said. But in business communications, it's extremely important that this particular capacity of an individual be exemplified. So you can think of or write down the word communications, but the exactness of communications and perhaps it comes to me from my engineering background because you deal in mathematics and you deal very concisely. You can't approximate addition or subtraction or calculus and so on. You have to be very exact about it. But taking that over into the business world, I have found that the people who are most successful and who grow managerially are ones who have very favorable communication skills both in delivery and in listening. Hmm. I also have learned over the years, for multiple reasons, to document my activities. So when I'm in a meeting with a group of people, I'm always a note taker. People know that. So they're careful about what they have to say, and what they uh, may think about it, not only right now in terms of the reaction, but what it means down line. Also, when people write reports, as an example, we have people who travel all over the world, and they all have to write trip reports on what they've done, who they saw, what follow-up there should be, and I get a copy of every person's trip report. And While I don't have the ability and time to read every word in everybody's trip report, I focus on specific things with a highlighter, and I mark them up, and then every now and then back to one of those persons with a question. If you talk to two people in our organization away from me, does Ed read all my things? You bet he does. So the image of myself out there is, yes, you better be careful, because he does read what you write. And if you don't write anything of adequacy, you're, you're going to get feedback. So many times I reject the TRIP report and say that this TRIP report had no value, no content, no meaning, and the writer of it, the next time they go on a TRIP, uh, is a little bit more succinct and has higher content in what they write about. So you, you, whether you're reading a research report on securities or whether you're reading a TRIP report or any document, the idea of people uh, knowing that their CEO, their executive, in his leadership activity is actually looking into that material respectfully and then raising questions about it brings a quality up for all of the rest of the people in the organization because they know if it's going to be reviewed not only by their own manager but ultimately by the CEO of the company. So the idea of document documenting is very, very important. Now in more recent years as our firm has grown in size, we all know that the legal community out there has gotten very complex and it's gotten very active. And I have found that in, in legal cases where we've been involved and where I'm called on to be a witness, and I have documented reviews of, of people's performance, or I have other communications that reflect that, communi- that, that uh, evaluation, we've won those cases. So documentation now, besides being a communication part of your business work, uh, of your executive leadership skills, is a very important part of the substantiation of your legal position in the world out there and as any of you who start a business or grow a business or become CEO of an established business you're going to be dealing with the legal arena no question about it and it's not getting any less active and it'll continue to get uh, more serious in my opinion. Another executive characteristic, a leadership skill that I've learned and I think I started with this because we only had two people in the firm, but I call it the open open door policy. The CEO's office in our firm has an open door. Means you can come in and see me if you want. Now the question that would raise is, oh my gosh, Ed, isn't that overwhelming? Everybody's going to come in and see you and go around their managers. Here's what I found by experience in this area. The answer is not, that doesn't happen. People know that they have the opportunity to come in to see the CEO under this open door policy that he has, but at the same time, they're very respectful of it. And they go to their own managers and up the line first on things that if they can be solved there, they're solved. If they believe that the CEO needs to know something that's pretty sensitive misbehavior, fraud, whatever the case may be uh, they'll come into my office privately and they will share with me what they want. And they know that when they come to my office and share something with me, even though I'm taking notes again, that I'm not going to go to their manager or to somebody else and report what they've told me. They know it's going to be uh, confidential, trusted, and maybe constructive and useful going, going forward. So these, the open door policy is, 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 from my point of view, has worked very well in my executive leadership experience. And I would encourage that. Now, somebody who walks into a new company, uh, not a new, excuse me, a company that's already established with thousands of people and becomes a CEO uh, from an outside uh, uh, employment person, and to have an open door policy immediately is probably almost impossible. But there's something can be done, though, to to facilitate that. And so now I'm going to get into my next little acronyms that I think are, are kind of fun. We all know, everybody here in this room knows what MBA is. Now, so what I developed was, some years ago, and I don't remember how far back, I developed what I call an MBWA. Does anybody know what that stands for? Go ahead. You got it right. So, obviously somebody else developed this, not me personally, but the MBWA approach is really, really useful. Okay, I've got these six projects. I'm a good, I could have every one appointment made in my office, but I could do it another way. I could take my little six packages and go down the hallway, and then what, I convert it now to MBRA. Tell us what MBRA is. You don't know that one? <laughs> what? Roaming? Well, th- th- that's a good one, but I call it running. <laughs> MBRA, running around. And so that means I'm going fast because i got a lot of places to stop. But while I'm doing that, I'm also communicating with people I pass in the hallway. And I do my very, very best to try to learn at least their first names. Hi, John, hi, Mary, hi, Betty, whatever, Hi you today, whatever. I don't have to know everybody's last name. And if I don't know their name, but I know they've been there for 10 years, hi, oh, Bob, no, I'm sorry, I forgot your name. Tell me, remind me. Well, I think people in the firm, in terms of communications and, and this open door policy, actually like the fact that their CEO can move around the firm and can have contact with them and say hello to them and, and in some case, most cases he knows their first name. And, and if I were that employee's person, I would feel quite, uh, quite honored about that. When I worked at Wagner Electric in St. Louis as a student engineer, uh, I had some ex- just the opposite experience. The president of the company wouldn't even be seen with anybody uh, outside of his office or his area. And the senior executive, the most senior engineer in the company, when I went into his office with a group of students, engineers at the time, he made the pronouncement that he went home every night without any paperwork at all. He bragged about not taking a briefcase home, not taking anything home on the weekends and so on. And I never forgot that. It felt very strange to me that he would say such a thing. And I, dis- I didn't think it was right. And I can tell you for sure that today I know he was absolutely wrong. I learned later that he lost his job within a year or two after uh, I left uh, St. Louis and went to Cincinnati and then came to California. So that that kind of a philosophy does not work. Don't be embarrassed about a heavy briefcase or two briefcases and so on. Uh, you're, you're, we're talking about business here. We're not talking about the legal profession where lawyers tend to have a lot of briefcases and so on. I'm talking about business people. And and so taking home things uh, that you need to work on is, is very important. Another thing that I adopted, and I got this from Goldman Sachs. Goldman Sachs was founded in the 1850s. And even as recently as the last two years, they hold their management committee meetings. By management committee, I mean the top hierarchy, the president and the executives they hold their management committee meetings on Saturdays. It sounds very logical not to do that, to have them during the week, say Wednesday afternoon, so on. But how many people all of a sudden have an interference, have to come in and leave or can't come to the meeting at all? You see? So we started with the Saturday management committee approach and we keep it today. And I can tell you, and we do it, we used to do it once a month, now we do it once every two months. This is an example of executive leadership that I think is really important. I've been in the hospital, like all of us have on occasions, and certainly at my advanced age in life, you're going to be there once or twice. Well, the one Saturday was a meeting, and I'm in the hospital. What did we do? I, they put me in a big room where they could put about 15 chairs around the bed, and we had the management committee meeting. And Some people thought I was maybe crazy. I thought possibly as well, but people, have, people haven't forgotten that, and they remember that uh, we had how that, so that tells everybody how important that management committee meeting is in our minutes of management committee meeting and communicating what was done or discussed or concluded at that meeting we have what's called follow up and going back 20 25 years ago i found that our follow up was very very weak so it's all of you have sat in meetings and you decide things but nothing gets done executive leadership needs to solve that problem and the way we solved that problem partially was by in the minutes, putting the initials of the person who's responsible for follow-up in the left-hand column of the minutes. And then, if that doesn't get done by the meeting two months later, then it stays on a cumulative list with their names on it. And so then every meeting, we're not only looking at what we decided at the prior meeting for follow-up, we're looking at all the things that we want to discuss, have been discussed, say, for the last two or three years. So it's very embarrassing, and our board of directors gets copies of those minutes, it's very embarrassing for a director to say to somebody, including me, gee, I see that you have this open item since uh, 2009. How come you haven't got it taken care of? So there's a real incentive to get things done. Another approach to executive leadership, which I found very useful, was because things would be talked about but they just would drag on. So we put up a big sign in the front of our meeting, we put it up there permanently where we had the meeting, get it done, hyphen, do it now. And so you think about that, how many things do you have to get done, and the difference between doing it now or just because it's not so important, pushing it off. So an executive leader who gets things done that are decided and gets it done now, is going to have what I call a leadership projection that's going to be much more favorable. And then what happens is it's not just the CEO. See, that has to culture has to find its way out through the entire through the entire company. We have a few comp, few uh, components of our culture that I think are worthy of mention mentioning besides the things I've already talked about. We're in a world where. Uh, People tend to not dress very well, maybe. Let's call it dressing down. My opinion is people should do their best to dress up rather than dress down. Now, there could be arguments going both ways on this subject, but I can tell you for sure I support dressing up versus dressing down. One of our executives about five years ago or ten years ago recommended that we have casual Friday, uh, which is dressing down. And we said, okay, we'll, we'll, we'll do that. And then we have some people here who are raising money for breast cancer or for some other really important activity. And they want to reward people by saying, you can wear jeans. So people, about two, three times a year, come to me and say, can we wear jeans on this Friday? And will help us raise money? I said, well, how are you going to raise money by wearing jeans? And the answer is, well, we make certain that the person who's going to wear jeans has to give $20. Uh, to this. So I say, okay, go ahead and, and, and let's do that. So there's a real move and the securities business, our business, financially went to dress down about 10 years ago and they had casual Fridays and they had casual all day, all week rather, and then uh, now it's gone the other way. So I can tell you from ex- real experience out there that dressing up is now starting to come back. But that doesn't mean that dressing casually, which I see a lot of people in the audience here, that doesn't mean it's wrong. It's a question of how you want to relate your image and projection to other businesses in the same field in particular. I've always been a proponent of non-vulgarity. That's a culture in our company. Now, when I was growing up as a teenager, like all of us, I got exposed to all the worst words in the world, of course. So I had a choice. What do I do with that? Do I repeat it to try to be the same? Again, that's like dressing down. That's like talking down. And I decided that that's not my course. And the Christian religion that I belong to said, you don't use foul language. So an executive characteristic, in my opinion, is no foul language. And now what I do in the, again, in the securities business, I have an office, I sit out in the trading room during part of the day, and I have my own private office. So when I'm in the trading room, I notice that vulgarity is almost non-existent. I can understand why. I guess if I was one of the people working there, I wouldn't want to have the president of a company that has no foul language as a policy to hear me use vulgarity. And so't they don 't they don't use vulgarity in the securities business by the way, vulgarity was extremely prominent back over the years, and in some places it may still be almost every other word getting mad and throwing food at the glass windows. We had one person some years ago that pulled out a knife a sheath type long knife and we we've, we've all these things now have, have gone away our people really from a cultural point of view, really, really well behaved. (laughs) Let me talk a little bit about the work ethic. Uh, Sam Walton, and I hope I'm not running too far out of time. Put your hand up when I do. Okay, Uh, everybody knows who Sam Walton is and was. Sam Walton wrote a book one year before he died. He died 16 years ago. He wrote a book entitled Made in America. And in this Made in America, he, at the end of the book, listed 10 things that he thought you should be doing as a manager, as an executive, as a business founder. He was a business founder, and look what he founded. It's now the biggest retail operation in the world. When, when he wrote that book, I expected in the t- 10 things that he wrote that he would talk about work ethic, how hard you should have to work. And here's what he said in the paragraph above that. He said, if I have to tell you that you have to have a strong work ethic, as one of my ten recommendations, then you don't need to read this book. <laughs> interesting, that really hit me hard and I never forgot those words and the idea being that you've got to have a strong, solid work ethic. So that's one of the, let's call it a culture characteristic, an executive characteristic, whatever phrase you want to put on it, there's got to be a strong, a strong work ethic. And then he went on to describe the ten items. Talk about business continuity and ownership. I had access to his will, which was in the database of the Wall Street Journal. And while uh, I read it, and it was so striking to me, this particular paragraph, that I I memorized it. And I want to repeat it to you because it's something worth thinking about when you create something. Do you create something to sell it to somebody, to make a lot of money, or do you create something because you love it and you're going to go through life and live with it until you pass and other people are going to continue it? It has to do with continuity. He owned 38% of Walmart when he died. He gave the entire 38% to his family, his wife Helen, and three children. In his will, he said to them Don't any of you ever sell this stock except in small quantities for charitable contribution. If you don't follow my request, I'll be back. <laughs> <laughs> and I'll take care of you. And once more, you don't know that I know how to do that. Isn't that an interesting statement? I thought about that a lot, not just in reading it, but that was his way of communicating an important message. His wife Helen just died a year or so ago, and and they still have that 38% of Walmart. So while Walmart is a widely publicly owned company, it still has ownership, centralness and control which provides continuity and provides a kind of executive leadership that I think is really important. So, Walmart is a real good example of, of continuity and executive leadership. And the last couple of things that I just want to summarize here in the financial area a little bit, and I had to learn this as well, because when you start a brokerage firm with $5,000 from each of two people, you have to be a little bit crazy. Even, now that's today, of course, it really is absurd. But this is in 1955, but still it was absurd at that point in time. My partner, Robert Werner's father, who was a CPA, strongly advised his son not to go into this business. And the reason he did that was I found out later, I figured it out, was that he thought we'd probably go bankrupt and that would be a bad emblem for the family. I didn't even think about that possibility. But when you start a firm, no matter whether it's with a $1 million dollars, a hundred thousand, or whatever the numbers are, you've got to be frugal and you have to manage the p l And we learned that the very first year. We had revenues of $659, and we made a little profit. Maybe it was $10 or $20, but we ran it in a way, instead of having deficits accumulate, and then try to sell it and maneuver past that later on, we ran it profitably. So what we've done, we've had all profitability in the firm over the years. We've had two years out of 55, where I think we either uh, probably lost a small amount or, or didn't grow. And we've also retained earnings. Some people who run businesses want to take all the money out in dividends or distributions of some sort. We've run it philosophically by we want to retain the earnings. So we've grown the net worth of the company from $10,000 to 320 million approximately today of, of equity and we don't use leverage. That's the other financial component. I was shocked by what I was reading in 2006 and 2007 when Lehman went down, Merrill Lynch went down and had to sell out the Bank of America. Uh, other firms of the top five, three of them went down. I was shocked and very disappointed. And then when I looked into their use of leverage and I saw that they were using for every $1 of equity anywhere from $15 to $20 of assets on their balance sheet, particularly in proprietary positions, I found that was... I couldn't believe what they were doing it. And so even today, we don't use leverage. While we do borrow from banks to facilitate some very large underwriting transactions, we stay away from permanent debt and leverage use in our business. And I found that very, very useful. That doesn't mean if you start a business or you're growing a business that you shouldn't do bank borrowing or you shouldn't use leverage. I'm just talking about the idea of being conservative in approaching the use of leverage if you're looking for long-term or when you're looking for long-term viability. In talking to you individually about your careers and your growth, my most important recommendation, based again on my experience, and I didn't think about this or know about this when I was a graduate student at all, but what I did, and I happened to be a graduate student right down the street here from you at UCLA, and they had all of the people, including Goldman Sachs, out there interviewing the MBA students, but I knew what I wanted to do in my heart. I wanted to I wanted to go into the securities markets. I wanted to understand more about capitalism. So I sum that up by saying follow your heart. That's the most important thing. You go out and have six interviews, and this one pays the most. And if that's the, common, that that's the most important denominator, I think you're making a mistake. You follow your heart. Now, maybe your heart will change in time. You'll want to do something different, and you can change it. But my observation about my experience is that by following my heart, I'm committed to it. So I don't even know what the word retirement means. I don't know how to define it. To me, following my heart and doing what I'm doing is something I want to do to the last, uh, last hour. So that's a, a, a leadership type uh, a characteristic that I would strongly recommend to you. You're doing a fantastic job here in terms of the schoolwork, and this is a tremendous institution. And I'm a little bit late learning about it, but I have to say that uh, this is a very opportunistic place to be for lots of reasons, which most of you already know and understand. And it's going to get better and better uh, with time. And so with that point, I think I'll close and say God bless to all of you. Thank you.